Welcome to Fearless Faith, a channel that inspires Christians to draw near to the Word of God and even closer to Him. My name is Mario Malik, and I want to take you on a journey as I search the Bible for the answers to some of life's deepest questions. But this question of fear, we're all afraid of it. And there are things in relationship to this fear that you and I have to recognize that if you trust in God and let Him be your guide and strength, you won't have that fear. And your fear is in relationship to your trust. As your faith in God gets stronger, your fear dissipates, and as your faith in God gets weaker, your fear arises. You want to have fear dissipated and removed? Then you rise up and hold up the name of the living God and look to Him to undertake for you, and He will. It's our faith that brings victory. It's our faith that casts out fear and enables us to put our trust in the blessed Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We will worship the man of Galilee who went to a cross 2,000 years ago, and no one can take his place. No one will intercede or interfere. We will not permit it. So it is we have faith without fear. So tonight's message is called Faith Over Fear. It's a this topic was one of the very first sermons I shared seven years ago after becoming a Christian. It was about fearless faith. Now, a lot's changed since the you know, seven years ago or 2015 when I became a Christian. And it seems that the last two years really has put our faith to the test. We can see birth pains today. Uh, we can see that the pains are increasing globally. And in the words of the prolific American uh, revolutionary Martin Luther King, he said this, he said, it is midnight in our world today, and we're experiencing a darkness so deep, we can hardly see where to turn. It's midnight. What has the last two years shown us? Has shown us lockdowns, tyranny, shortages, cities being burned down, corruption, war, plagues, Sudden deaths, lawlessness, confusion, control, blasphemy, disobedience, rebellion, even rebellion from within the house of God. You see, there are two great forces at work here. There are the external forces, the ones which you and I can't control, but there are internal forces. You see, we have very little control over the external forces, such as natural disasters or the misconduct of others or even illness in some sense. What really matters to you and I is the internal force. How do I respond to those disasters? How do I um, overcome those things that I have complete control over? But before I attempt to answer that question, I want to pose this one. How did we get here? How did we get here in the first place? I believe there is one reason and one reason only. And that is because as a collective, the world has no fear of God. How did we get here? By desacralizing all the things that God ordained as sacred by desacralizing everything that God ordained as sacred, in particular in the Ten Commandments that he gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. What were those ten things that were sacred? Number one, God's sovereignty is sacred. Number two, God's worship is sacred. Number three, God's name is sacred. Number four, God's instructions are sacred. Number five, family is sacred. Number six, life is sacred. Number seven, sexual intimacy is sacred. Number eight, property is sacred. Number nine, truth is sacred. And number ten, desire 
ought to be sacred. They are the original Ten Commandments. And it's the desacralization of all of these ten words that have put us in the mess that we find ourselves. Sovereignty, worship, God's name, instructions, family, life, sexual intimacy, property, truth, desire. It is the desacralization of all of these that has put us in the mess that we find ourselves. And to even go one step further, to desacralize the honor of God, today, right now, global leaders and religious leaders, including those from your church and mine, are meeting at Mount Sinai in Egypt to come up with 10 new universal commandments. Not 10 commandments to further glorify and honor God, but rather 10 commandments to introduce Christianity and all other religions to the pagan worship of the earth. It's utter blasphemy. This is happening right now at the COP27 summit in Mount Sinai in Egypt. I believe that's why St. Paul wrote this to the church in Rome. In Romans chapter 1, Give me a second. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 25, it says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they may so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. But they became futile in their thoughts, and their thought their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore also God gave them up to uncleanliness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies and among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. They worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And in some sense, well, in all sense, <laughs> deception is often shrouded by a bodyguard, uh, sorry, truth is shrouded by a bodyguard of lies. You see, we ought to be looking after the planet. But that's out of our reverence towards God and his creation, not out of serving and worshipping the earth itself. What we're seeing today is not an individual nation under judgment. Friends, what we're seeing today is a world under judgment. God has given them over to the evil desires of their hearts and he has granted the world to do as they will. And yet with all that is happening around us, Many people are still spiritually blind and have no idea what is happening in the world. Not because the truth is not out there, but because the truth of God is not in them. Without the ability to discern what is true, what is right and what is real against what is false, what is a lie and what is not of God. Matthew chapter 13, verse 13 to 16 says this, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of his people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. The people of God do not hear 
and see anymore. It's utter chaos. But when these times of pain come, it leads us to ask some big questions. We all have questions. Questions plague us. And when our experience doesn't meet our expectations, we become shaken and even fearful. You see, that's why I believe that a biblical worldview is crucial. Truly understanding who the God of the Bible is, what he's like, what he likes, what he hates, what he loves, what he desires, what he despises. Dare I say, a correct biblical worldview is essential. What do I mean by that? You see, the greatest doubts arise from systemic contradictions. What does that mean? The greatest doubts that you and I have come from systemic contradictions. Contradictions or seemingly contradictions in our personal belief systems, our religious belief systems, or even our uh, global or universal belief systems. Maybe we believe that people ought to treat each other kindly. And when that doesn't happen, well, then we begin to doubt humanity. So these systemic contradictions, whether in our personal beliefs, our religious beliefs, spiritual beliefs, or our universal beliefs. Now, let's talk about God for a moment. If you assume God promises riches, then what happens to your faith when you don't have much? What if you assume that God promises happiness and only happiness? Then what happens to your faith when you're not happy? What if you assume God promises health, unlimited health? Then what happens to your faith when you're sick? What happens when you've created a caricature of God, an unbiblical and unbalanced view of God, and things just don't go your way? You begin to doubt. And in some sense, if you've created a false God in your heart, you should doubt. <laughs> and you should turn to the God of the Bible. I'll say that again. If you've created a false God in your mind, and you doubt that God, good. Abandon that false ideal of God and turn to the God of the Bible. And I'll explain why. Because a lot of what we hear today isn't what the God of the Bible promises you or I. The solution here is twofold. Number one, it's to know who God really is. And number two, to obey him fully, according to his word. To wrap up this point, what if you've created a God in your mind that will never allow you to go through tough and challenging times? What if you've created a God in your mind that's all about health, wealth, and happiness? And you start to experience those things, um, the contrary, the opposite of those things. That God simply does not exist, the health, wealth, and happiness God. We'll go through challenging times. In fact, Jesus Christ promised us tribulations, in particular when we follow him. Does that mean that we ought to live in fear? Because fear happens when we are pulled by the world rather than when we are being led by God. We respond to uncertain and stressful situations with fear. You see, but God promised us, God told us that when he puts us through the fire, when he puts us through the furnace, that we will experience challenging times. On that reference of gold and fire, let's look at the three young men of the Old Testament with Daniel that were thrown into the fire. With all that is plaguing our world today, friends, God commands his people to not live in fear. And that's challenging. Even though it may seem that we have many reasons. Maybe you're fearing losing your job. Maybe you're fearing some kind of forced medical experiment. Maybe you're fearing for your children in the world that they're growing up in. Maybe you're fearing for your home with the cost of living that is rising. 
there is no doubt that we have enough reasons. If it weren't for God's command not to fear, who could blame us? Let me put it in one sentence for you. God allows pain, but he rebukes fear. God allows pain, but he rebukes fear. The Bible makes it clear that our growth happens through pain. It's not in the times of great ease that we tend to grow the most, but in times of grief. Pain is not our topic. Pain and suffering is not our topic for tonight. Um, we'll chat about that in a few weeks' time. But it's the desire to avoid pain that le leads us to fear. But Jesus Christ promises us tribulations, and yet we must obey his commands to fear not. That's why the psalmist said this in Psalm 23, verse 1 to 4. He said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yes, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. What does that mean? The staff is what a shepherd holds to lead the flock of sheep through the green pastures. The rod is what's used to discipline a child. You see, God holds both a rod and a staff, a staff to guide and a rod to discipline. Don't be fooled. Sometimes the pain and struggle that we experience in our life is in fact Discipline from God. An example of this was a group of people being led by God and they still experienced fear. In Exodus chapter 14, we see the Israelites, they're being cornered against the Red Sea at the hands of the Egyptian army pursuing them. And they're crying out to God. That sounds like a good thing, right? We ought to be crying out to God. When you're in trouble, we ought to cry out to God. But yet, God doesn't seem to care much for it. And I'll read this passage to you. Actually, let's read that passage. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, sorry, this is Exodus chapter 14, verse 1. Exodus chapter 14, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pi-Haroth uh, um, between Migdol and the sea opposite Baal Zephon. Say that five times quick. You shall camp before, uh, before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. So basically at this point in the story, uh, God has led the Israelites through Moses out of Egypt. Pharaoh decides to let them go. He says the wilderness will kill them. They're not killed in a wilderness and they make it to the Red Sea. Pharaoh hears about this and decides well, we can't let them go free. They didn't die in the wilderness. These people must die. As they're traveling, the people of, of Israel are complaining to Moses, saying, what, uh, what are you doing here? Why didn't you leave us in Egypt? There was food in Egypt. There was meat in Egypt. There was comfort in Egypt. But you took us out here so we can die in the wilderness? What is this? So they began to blame Moses. And they began to cry out to God, saying, God, what have you done? Why have you brought us here? The Egyptian army is released. Pharaoh leads his best uh, charioteers to attack the army. 
And then Moses begins to cry out to God and he says, God, what's going on? I thought you said you were going to rescue us. And God says here in verse uh Verse 13, and Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Why do you cry to me, Moses? Tell the children of Israel to go forward, but lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. Why do you cry out to me, Moses? I promised that I was going to save you. I promised that I was going to rescue you. What's all this noise for? Lift up your hand and I will make a way. You see, here is the problem. It's not that God doesn't want to bring us, um, want, wants us to bring our pain and supplication before him. That's not it at all. God wants to hear about everything that's going on in our life and in our day. But rather, it's because the Israelites have already been rescued from Egypt. They were led through the wilderness with a pillar of fire uh, at night and a pillar of cloud through the day. They were fed in the wilderness. They had seen the angel of the Lord. But now they're crying out to God. What we see in this passage isn't a problem with the Israelites' fear, but rather with their faith. Not with their fear, but the problem was with their faith. Because indeed, without faith and confidence in God's promises, the fear was very warranted. There was a fear in their community. Can we see that today? Can we see fear in our communities? A 21st century um, father and preacher, Abbot Trifon, he said this. He said, there are a lot of fear-based communities in our world. Some are religious and some are polit political. All are guilty of missing the mark when it comes to the message of the church. We Christians were not programmed to be victims, living in fear. For the Christian, the true self is the one that is created in the image and likeness of God. As children of the Most High, we are meant to live not in fear, but in a joyful state, knowing and experiencing the love of God. Our God is not a God of anger and vengeance, but one who invites us into a relationship based in loving communion. God is not waiting to send fire down upon the heads, upon our heads as an angry parent, but rather a loving father who desires that we connect with our true selves and put off the false self. When we live as problem-centered people, he continues, we miss the mark. If we focus on those things in our lives that are negative, such as struggles with a particular sin or negative thinking, we fail to live up to the true self. Many therapists keep their patients in a codependent state by giving them labels that speak of mental illness, so on and so forth. I want to speak about mental illness in a moment. These are his words. So. I want to speak to that mental illness conversation in a second. Political parties often keep themselves in power by playing to the negative labels they've created for the opposition. Religions often do the same, even with our own adherents, keeping them hooked in a negative pattern that disallows a spiritual growth that leads to healing and spiritual well-being. Fear-based communities use abuse to keep their people in line, leaving them in a state of perpetual infancy, unable to reach their full potential and preventing them for re from realizing their true self. Such institutions, political or religious, prevent people from flourishing. 
God invites us to integrate our lives as his children and utilizing all the gifts he has given us which lead to fulfilled lives. Fear is vanquished for the Christian precisely because we are God's children. In orthodoxy, the priests and bishops are called upon to encourage the faithful to live, to live lives in faithfulness to God's commandments. Not because there will, be a there will be grave consequences if we don't, but because of the great joy that is ours when we have communion with God. You see, friends, faithfulness to God's commandments is what matters the most. But we must not understand faith and the meaning of faith through modern eyes. You see, because over an extended period of time, language changes. The meaning of things change. In fact, the world is losing its bearings today because the meanings of almost everything has changed. But the word faith is really important for us to understand. And there are two groups in particular that I believe have cheapened the meaning of the word faith. Now, I want to say this lovingly, but I want to say this honestly, because truth matters more than anything else. I don't mean to put anyone down or uh, invalidate anyone's belief systems. I just want to bring awareness to a cheapening of the meaning of the word faith. The first group that is responsible for this is the atheistic movement. At the hands of Richard Dawkins and the like, we've been led to believe as Christians that our faith is merely a belief system, something that we intellectually and mentally believe in. It is not sufficient for us to say that Christianity and being an adherent to the teachings of Jesus Christ is purely an intellectual exercise. It's not. Faith is not merely a belief system. You, you can believe in anything you want. You can believe you're a pumpkin for God's sakes. does not mean that it's true. In fact, over the last couple of hundred years, to refer to other religions as, as faiths is wrong. Because as I'm about to describe the, the true original meaning of the word faith, you realize that this can only be done in union and communion with a living God. It is not an idea. It is not an ideal. It is not something that we can just intellectually think up. Now, the second group that is responsible for cheapening the meaning of the word faith, and I say this with all love and respect, some of my greatest friends, uh, the people I work with, the people I minister with and, and minister to, are of this group, and that is the modern Pentecostal movement. You see, they've led the world to believe that you merely have faith by saying that you believe in Jesus and accept him as Lord and Savior. The sinner's prayer was not intended to be an invitation for Jesus to live in the treehouse of your heart. The sinner's prayer is, a, is an old prayer, several hundreds years old. The sinner's prayer is, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But the modern Pentecostal movement has taken the term sinner's prayer or the Jesus prayer and turned it merely into an invitation for this God to live in the treehouse of your heart. The problem is it is often proclaimed at a point in time that someone may have not even heard the gospel message in its entirety, but rather may have attended a church for the very first time or a gathering for the very first time, heard a 20-minute talk about Jesus. And that's assuming that the faithfulness of the biblical representation of Jesus was kept at all. And they say, if you have faith and just proclaim that Jesus is Lord and you accept him as your Savior, that's faith. But friends, that's not. That's just repeating a few lines some guy told you to say. And we'll see how in Scripture 
that faith is so much more than a belief system or an invitation of some kind. We shouldn't understand this verb through modern eyes. Let's take a look at the etymology, the origins of the word. The word faith uh, is an ancient word, but I want to bring it to you how it comes to us in English. And that's in the mid-13th century. Back in the 13th century, the meaning was this. Trust or promise. Loyalty to a person. Honesty. Truthfulness. And that comes from its root word, fedire or fedir, which means to confide. To confide. To be confident. Biblically, faith is not a matter of intellect or simply a mental exercise. But faith is a confidence in a promise, which means there has to be a promise giver. So when we call other religions faiths, well, do their gods, number one, exist? Number two, can you be confident in the earthly messengers of those worldviews? Let's take an example from Hebrews 11, where the word faith makes an appearance and I think it explains it very well that this is not merely an intellectual exercise, but rather it is a confidence in a promise. We see uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, I'm not going to read the entire chapter, just some of the highlights there, uh, the hall of faith. These are the Old Testament prophets and servants of God who were put in heaven's hall of faith. It says this, By faith Abel offered to God. By faith Enoch was taken away. By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark. By faith Abraham obeyed. By faith Sarah also um, herself also received strength to conceive by faith, by faith, by faith, and they took an action. By faith, and an action was taken. What does this mean for you and I? By faith, Noah built an ark. What is it that Noah had to believe to go and build the biggest boat the world had ever seen? It's not because someone told him to believe something. But it's rather because he had walked and known and spoken with the living God, that he was given instructions, and God promised that a flood was coming. And by confidence in God's promises, Noah built the ark. Faith is the verb that drives us to continue when our expectations do not yet meet our experience. I'll say that again. Faith is the thing, it is the verb that drives us to continue when our expectations do not yet meet our experience. In Noah's case, he continued to build. The people mocked him. They jeered. They mocked his family. But he had faith, not merely a belief system, but confidence because a living God had spoken to him of things to come, and there are so many passages of scripture and stories that um, that deliver that where God delivers His people according to His promises. If God so desires, He will provide in a time of famine. If God so desires, He will protect in a time of war. If God so desires, He will preserve in times of weakness. If God desires so, he will give peace in times of turbulence. Let's look at a recent story of someone who could have easily 
found a hundred reasons to abandon her confidence in God. Her name was Annie, Annie J. Flint. Annie Flint. She was an orphan. She was blind. She was incontinent. She was propped up on pillows because of the sores on her body. And all of this was happening to her. But as she laid on her bed, unable to see, unable to move, unable to eat, unable to go or to control going to the toilet, Annie J. Flint wrote this. She said, he gives more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sends more strength as the labors increase. To added afflictions, he adds his mercy. To multiply trials, he multiplies peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed and the day is half done, when we have reached the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. Fear not that... You fear not that your need shall exceed his provision. Our God ever yearns his resources to share. Lean hard on the arm everlasting availing. The Father, both thee and thy load, my load and your load, he will upbear. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of the infinite riches in Jesus, he gives and gives and gives again. You see, faithfulness, confidence in God's promises, and not despite the reality of pain and suffering, but through the reality of suffering and pain, that we will draw near and even nearer to God. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 to 11, he says this, he says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast, uh, remain steadfast in faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's read that last part again. But may the God of all grace, who was called to us, uh, called to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, that after you have suffered a while, that he will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. And he goes on to glorify God, saying to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, the modern world, and in particular the modern church, wants us to believe that the absence of pain the absence of suffering is the fullness of the will of God. But the Apostle Peter knew that after we have suffered a while, then we will be perfected, established, strengthened, and settled. And in this truth, he gives the highest honor and glory to God. You see, friends, Life is a promise of blissful times and painful times. And we as Christians have a mission to fulfill. And on that journey, following and obeying our God, we will be met with haters and violence and loneliness, with deceit, with all kinds of pain, with, with all kinds of persecution, with all kinds of tribulation. During the last two years, we saw this. You couldn't go to church, but you could go to the brothel. You couldn't go to church, but you could go 
to the football stadium. You couldn't go to church, but you could go to the shop. You couldn't go to church, but you could go to your church to receive an experimental medication. You see, being a real believer, a true believer in Jesus Christ today is risky business. But the person who risks nothing, he does nothing, has nothing, is nothing, and becomes nothing. You can avoid suffering and sorrow, but you won't learn, you won't feel, you won't change, you won't grow, and you won't learn to truly love. Chained by our need for safety and security, we run the risk of becoming slaves and we forfeit our freedom. And isn't that true in the world today? Chained by our need for security and safety, we run the risk of becoming slaves to people and we forfeit our freedoms because we're unable to stand for the truth and take a risk. Only the person who takes a risk is truly free. And I invite you to say yes to life, to say yes to wonder, to joy, to despair. Say yes to pain. Say yes, Lord, to what you don't understand. And remain faithfully in prayer. Faithfully, not intellectually. I'm not saying dismiss the intellect. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying don't think it's purely a mental exercise to say, I think, I believe. But believe in his promises because what he says comes true. And we might not see immediate change when we pray. This doesn't mean that God doesn't care or that he isn't listening. God has a plan for each one of us whether it's to refine us during this season or to rescue us during this season. But every journey may sometimes, and in our fallen state, will be painful and tiresome. That is the result of the fall. But we must learn to push through and to trust him, bearing our cross with patience, with humility and perseverance. That's why, friends, the Bible says those who endure until the end will be saved. Those who endure in the truth, those who endure in suffering, those who endure through the tribulation, those who endure through the time that is coming upon us. They will be saved. Every moment of our life is in God's capable and loving hands. Keep trusting in him because he is faithful. I want to read a story from the Bible in 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 20. It's a long story, but bear with me because it illustrates this so perfectly. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. It happened after this that the people of Moab with the people of Ammon and others with them besides the Ammonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from Syria, and they are in Hazazon Tamar. Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord, and from all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O God of our fathers, are you not the God in heaven? 
And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? Get this. His prayer saying to God, are you not the God of heaven? Can't you stop this war? Isn't everyone and everything in your hands? Are you not our God who drove the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel? Drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? Aren't you our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land and gave it to the descendants of your people? Verse 8, And they dwell in it and built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple in your presence for your name is in this temple and cry out to you in our affliction and you will hear and save. Isn't that fascinating that during the last two years, how many church leaders took their people before the throne of God and said, if disaster comes upon us, if sword or judgment or plagues, pestilence or famine, we'll stand before the temple in your presence for your name is in the temple and cry out to you in our affliction and you will hear and save. Instead, most ran away, put on the face nappies and shut the church. I digress. Verse 10. And now, here are the people of Ammon, Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and did not destroy them. Here they are rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not judge them? Feels like a question that we're asking today. For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Now all Judah, with their little ones, their wives and their children, stood before the Lord. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, in the midst of the assembly. So the spirit came upon this young boy in the midst of the assembly. And he said, listen, all of you of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. They will surely come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jurel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. O Judah and Jerusalem, Who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem? Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head and said uh, with his face to the ground, and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord, worshipping the Lord. Then the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and the children of the Koharites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with voices loud and high. So they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness. And they went out. Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. And when he consulted with the people, he appointed them, appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of holiness. And they went out before the army and were saying, Praise the Lord. His mercy endures forever. Get this. The leader of an army, the king, takes the people. Rather than pointing them for battle, he appoints them to praise. Verse 22. And now when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. And the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly kill and destroy them. Understand this. Let me read it again so you understand what's happening here. Verse 22. And when they began to sing, the Lord sent ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir. Jehoshaphat hadn't arrived yet. 
But as they were walking, they were singing and praising God, and the armies began to fight one another. Ambushes were set against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. And the people of Ammon and Moab stood against inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly kill and destroy them. They began to fight each other rather than continuing to move forward to fight Judah. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. So when Judah came to a place overlooking the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude and there were dead bodies fallen on the earth. No one had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away their spoil, they found among them an abundance of valuables on the dead bodies and precious jewelry which they stripped off for themselves, more than they could carry away. And they were there for three days gathering the spoil because there was so much. And on the fourth day they assembled in the, in the valley of Beracha, for they were blessed. The verse continues. Therefore the place was called the valley of Beracha until today. So until today, that valley is still called the valley of blessing. Then they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem, with Jehoshaphat in front of them, to go back to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. So they came to Jerusalem with stringed instruments and harps, trumpets to the house of the Lord. And the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. You see, they had gone before the Lord to pray. And even in their seeming doubt, in their seeming questioning, they said, God, are you not the God? Of our inhabitants, of our ancestors? Are you not the God who made a way for us before? Are you not the God who's in control of all of this? And he said, Yes. Worship me. And the battle is not yours, but mine. All glory to his holy name. At the name of Jesus Christ, his son, every knee shall bow, every storm shall be stilled, everything lost will be found and everything dead will be brought to life again. Friends, remember, those who endure until the end will be saved. Our faithfulness is our confidence in God's promise.